0: You'll find your place this evening in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And while you find your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. Sometimes we say the head and heart are miles apart. And by this, we mean to reflect the fact that our thoughts often differ from our feelings. We can know something to be true, but we don't always feel it. For instance, I may feel that. My favorite baseball team is going to win the World Series this year. And yet, I know in my head that the odds are long. I feel positively, but I think negatively. Alternatively, a child who has just been disciplined by his father may feel like his father doesn't love him. And yet, if that child is wise and assures himself with the words of Proverbs 3, then he is reminded that discipline is an act of love and he knows that his father truly loves him he feels negatively but his knowledge informs him positively these illustrations help us to see the conflict that can exist between the head and the heart and they prepare us for our text for in this text we will see that this conflict between head and heart affects our perception of our relationship with god and when it does we must persuade our heart to bring it in line with what we know to be true for our triune God gives us all we need to know to know that we are children of his that we are of him and of the truth and so if you found your place with me would you follow along in first John chapter three beginning in verse 19 and I'll read to the end of the chapter By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word, we are reminded of these two truths that you, O oh Lord, are God. Therefore, you are greater than our hearts. And, O oh Lord, that you know all things. And on this basis, and on the basis of what we know to be true about Christ, that he is our advocate, and he is our propitiation. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to assure our hearts that we are indeed of the truth, if we have come to trust in him. We pray that you would speak to our hearts even now by your spirit, that we might be persuaded that indeed it is so, that we are your children. We have come to know him. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At some point, we will grow accustomed to the way that John speaks. He has a particular mannerism about him. And one of those particular ways of speech that we've seen several times to this point is in the phrase, by this we shall know. Let me read a few verses that we've already seen, and you will start to see it. In verse 3 of chapter 2, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Again, in verse 5 through 6, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God. And in chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, we have seen this kind of phrase before, and we need to get used to it because we will see it again. Having said this, it may be helpful to ask why John reminds us so often of the things that we know, or why John is so interested in helping us to see how we can know what we know. To answer this question, we must remember the context in which John writes. He wrote to a church that had gone through a great split. Many had departed from the church, not because they disliked their pastor, but because they had rejected the gospel as it had been delivered by the apostles. They rejected the message that the apostles had taught. And this unsettled the faith of those who remained in the church. So John wrote to encourage them. And that required him to remind them of what they knew in order to show them how they could discern for themselves who really was a follower of God and who the pretenders were. You see, that split would have unsettled their faith. It would have caused them to question, am I really on the right path? Those who departed were making big and bold claims about having true knowledge and true fellowship with God. Their bravado and their confidence would have left more timid souls wondering, am I really of the truth? Am I really a child of God? John wrote to settle their unsettled faith. So he gave them tests by which they could discern the truth. Now, in this passage, John introduces a new threat to the faith. All of those threats in that context came from without, so to say. But this one comes from within. And it follows naturally from what we read and heard last week when we looked at verses 17 through 18. Let me read those again for you. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God lo- God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The challenge of this text is straightforward. We all fall short of this standard. Not one of us perfectly loves in deed and in truth. Not one of us always opens our heart when we see someone else in need, when we see a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who is in need. And so when we read passages like this, they can unsettle us and cause us to doubt whether God's love really abides in us. In such cases, our heart our heart begins to condemn us. That is the issue that John takes up in the passage before us. Now, it may be helpful to note but the term for heart in verse 17 is different than the ver- term for heart in verse 19 through 20. I bring this to your attention because it affects the way in which we interpret the text. Let me explain. You see, in our context, when we think of our affections towards others, we think in terms of our hearts. We might say something like, my heart goes out to you. As a way of saying that we have compassion for that person. In John's context, they wouldn't have spoken like that. They would have said something more like, my gut feels for you. They spoke of how their, what their gut felt. And that's the term that John uses in verse 17. It's a term that is typically used to speak of a person's compassionate feeling of affection towards others. But because we don't speak of the gut that way, we translate the term as heart. But here in verse 19 and 20... John uses the word that we would literally translate as heart. That is the word that refers to that organ that pumps blood through our body. Because in his mind and in the minds of his readers, the heart was associated with a person's whole being. There in the heart was the combination of thoughts and emotions and the will. It's from the heart that a person is thought to believe. In that context. So you see in the gut. The idea is of having compassion. Towards someone else. But in the heart. There's a combination of of thoughts and feelings. Of affections and will. And and, and, and knowledge. That leads to belief. You can see that for instance. In uh, Paul's assurance to us in Romans 10. When he says. With the mouth we confess that Jesus is Lord. And with the heart we believe. Or in contrast. You can see it with the way that. Uh, The the biblical authors speak about a hardened heart when they're speaking about unbelief. Now, I don't take these terms then in verse 17 and in verse 19 and 20 as synonyms. I take them as related, but they refer to different things. And you'll see how this uh, influences the way that we interpret the text. You see, some people take this text as if what it's saying is that you have a condemning heart, okay, but you need to know that if you think your condemnation is, is bad, uh, God's condemnation is way more severe. Now, I don't think that's what the text is saying. In other words, the way they treat that te- the text is as if it's supposed to kind of scare us into taking verse 17 very seriously. Now, we need to take verse 17 very, ser- very seriously, but I don't think that's what John is saying here. He's not saying that, you know, in other words, they treat the word heart in 17 and, and, and in 19 and 20 as the same idea. And if they treat it as the same idea, what they're saying is, they think that what we're supposed to do is persuade our heart to act with love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's true. When we have a heart, when we, when we close off our affections towards someone, we do need to overcome that. But again, I don't think that's what John is saying here in verse 19 and 20. Rather, what John is saying is that sometimes in response to the reality of sin in our lives, our hearts will speak words of condemnation to us. That is, our hearts will condemn us. And in those situations, we need to reassure our hearts with the things that our head knows. We need to, another way to put it is persuade our hearts. We need to enter into that argument with our hearts and convince our hearts of what we know to be true. That we indeed are of the truth. And so John begins, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure or persuade our heart before him. For whenever, in anything in which our heart condemns us, John would have us know two things. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. In other words, what John does here is he tells our heart to respond to, our affection, uh, uh, to, to the situation with respect to our affections by persuading it of the truth that we know. So here's the picture. A person has seen a fellow Christian in need, and he has felt a tinge of compassionate feeling for him. He felt it in his gut but he shut that feeling down. He resisted it. Now he reads John's challenging words or hears them and his conscience is seared. His heart begins to speak. He discovers that the heart, which can harden itself in unbelief or soften itself to God's word, can also challenge faith in another way. It can attack faith with words of condemnation. His heart condemns him. In this situation, John calls upon the mind to persuade the heart on the basis of what it knows. So I think we all know what that feels like. As we have worked through this letter, I'm sure that we have all been seared by God's word. For some of us, this is our regular experience. Our hearts condemn us, and we do not know what to do. There is hope, however, for John will show us that our hearts do not get to speak the final word. He shows us how to persuade our hearts with those truths that I mentioned on the basis of God's greatness and God's omniscience by reminding our hearts of what we know to be true of God. Rudolph and Marilyn Markwald tell this story about Katerina Luther, the wife of Martin Luther. Once when Martin was so depressed that none of Kate's counsel would help, she put on a black dress. Luther noticed it and asked, Are you going to a funeral? No, Kate replied, but since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in mourning. Luther got the message and recovered. Luther needed to be reminded of something that is true of God that He exists and He's still God. We need a similar reminder when we face that the condemnation of our heart. Now, how do we do this? So imagine this picture with me. We have come into court, we're on trial. God the Father is the judge, and Christ is our defender. He's our advocate. That's what John told us in 1 John 2.1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. Suddenly, your heart steps into the witness stand. And instead of testifying for you, it condemns you. It points the finger at you and condemns you. It says, he deserves, she deserves to be condemned. She or he is not really of the truth, not really in Christ. Now God responds, I've already rendered my verdict. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our heart protests saying, but you don't know the half of what he's done. And God responds, I know all things. Our heart stammers. Then you know about what he did last weekend and yesterday and just now you know about the thought he just had. I know all things. Then surely he stands condemned, our heart concludes. No. Our heart wonders how. How is that possible? And in that moment our advocate steps forward and pleads the merits of his blood. With verses like we've already read and some that we will read in First John. 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And 1 John 4.9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins we have an advocate who is also our propitiation the debt is paid the verdict is rendered there is no condemnation for those who are in him no matter what your stammering heart says the verdict is rendered by the God who knows all things and the God who is greater than your heart And these are the things we need to say to our heart when it would condemn us. This is how we persuade our heart to bring it in line with our mind. We persuade it on the basis of what we know to be true from God's word. What we know to be true of him and of Christ and ourselves in him. Now, this scene will play out many times in our lives. We will need to assure ourselves of these things again and again but ideally it will become less frequent as we grow more like Christ with Christ's likeness comes confidence and John wants us to have that confidence he wants us to have the full assurance that comes with a godly life he wants us to enjoy that and therefore he does not merely want our head and our heart to be aligned because we persuaded our heart He wants our head and our heart to be aligned because we see the fruit of God's work in our lives. He wants us to see that God is indeed conforming us to the image of his son. And so John writes, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is an ideal situation which we can experience and for which we should strive. In this context, it is the situation that arises When we see God's work in our lives, it is not that we see that we have been made perfect. We won't be made perfect on this side of the cross. But the change in our lives is discernible. We do not perfectly love others, but we manifestly love others. We recognize that we owe this change to God's grace in our lives. And we see it as an evidence of God's grace in our lives. We know that we are in Christ And he is in us because we follow the pattern of his life in humble love and trust. This is what we should desire and this is what we should seek. And it's what John is encouraging us to seek. And the joyful result of this is if we have this kind of confidence, then we come to God in prayer with confidence. Look at what John says here in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, I'll need to qualify those verses. But before I do, I want the full weight of those verses to sink in. John will tell us more about prayer. And he'll give us some of those qualifications when we come to chapter 5. But here he is asserting that when we pray, we can be confident that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And that's an amazing truth. But of course, we do need to qualify it. Because John is not saying that whatever we pray for, God will give us. He's saying that when we pray in a particular way, we can be confident that God hears us. And that he answers our prayers in a way that is appropriate to his good and sovereign purposes. So there are assumptions then that underlie this text, that qualify it. Let me state those. The first assumption is that the person who is heard by God is a person who prays like Jesus. That is, he prays according to the Father's will. If he is keeping God's commandments and doing what pleases God, as John says, he is praying in line with God's will. In other words, he's not asking wrongly, as James says in James four two. He's not asking in order to spend it on his own passions. He's not asking for the brand new sports car, a or million dollars, or, well, you get the picture. He's asking for things that align with God's will as God has revealed it in his holy word. And he can be confident that God hears those prayers and that God will answer those prayers in accordance with his wisdom. We can see that in the life of Christ. For instance, when Jesus came to Lazarus's tomb in John eleven forty one 41 and 42, he said this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed with confidence, and he also taught his disciples to pray with that same confidence, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That is not to say that they ask these things simply by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, and suddenly they get it. When He says that you pray in my name. He's indicating that they're praying in accordance with Christ's will and his purposes and desires. They're praying in line with what God wills. And they can be confident that God will hear and answer those prayers. And so we should pray that way as well. A second qualification. The person who is heard by God prays as one who keeps God's commandments. Here, John makes the point specific to show us what he means. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Now, John does not need to go into every detail what it means to believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers don't say everything in every text. But he is showing us that the one who is heard by God, is one who approaches God through Jesus Christ and not through another. That's the person who is keeping the commandments of God, specifically this commandment that we should believe in his son. And the second commandment is that we should be conformed to his image, that we should love like his son. And again, John does not need to expound upon every detail of what it means to love like Christ. He'll show us that in other texts as he's already showed us what it looks like. But the person who approaches God in this way knows that his prayers will be heard. Those who believe in Christ and keep his commandments by loving others. Those are the people whom God hears. Now, I do not think that John is saying that God only answers the prayers of those who are sinlessly perfect. Perfect or those who have sufficiently dealt with their sin and now are in a state where they haven't sinned recently. No, I think that this is about direction more than perfection. The person is pursuing God in the way that pleases God. And we can see an example of that unfold in Jesus' own teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6.12, for instance, he taught his disciples to pray like this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in that instance, it is God's will, His express will, that we should be forgiven our sins. And He's telling us, pray that God would forgive you your sins. And you know He'll answer. But there is this point. If you harbor such resentment in your heart, that you are absolutely unwilling to forgive, someone seeks your forgiveness and you say, No, I just can't get over that. How can you know? How can you be assured that God will judge you by a more merciful standard? That's what Jesus is showing us there. That we need to have that same attitude of forgiveness and love that God has shown to us. And that really is something that God calls us to do. But He enables us to do those things. You must never think that somehow you... Must do this in your own discipline and in your own strength. God who is gracious hears this prayer too. Lord, I'm struggling to forgive. Help me to forgive. God loves those kinds of prayers. He's the one who can enable that kind of heart and that kind of attitude. So seek that help from Him. And finally, the person who is heard is conscious of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7:11. There Jesus taught. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? However, he's also aware that this sometimes means that God does not grant us precisely what we ask because he has something better in store. Imagine a child who's turned 15 says to his father, Dad, I'd like a model car for my birthday. His dad says, Oh, what kind of car would you like? His son's, well, why, I'm not asking for a real car, just a model car. His dad smiles. His son doesn't know. His dad's been saving a long time for a new car for his 16th birthday. But he's keeping that from him. And he says, just tell me a bit about the car that you'd like. Well, a red one and fast one, kind of like the one that you had when I was little. Well, maybe not this year, but we'll see about it next year. And all the while, his father knows that he has something better in store than what his son asked for. But his son's going to have to wait for that. He's going to have to wait till he's 16. And he's going to have that better thing. We pray for a lot of things. We pray that God would heal people when they are dealing with great and terrible illnesses. And very often, God's answer is, not yet. Not yet. But his answer is always yes, if they are in Christ. It's just that for many of us, that healing comes, for all of us, that final healing will come at the resurrection, when God raises our bodies to newness of life, to never suffer illness again. He's told us the better things that he has in store. And so when we pray, we do recognize that not Everything that we ask for will be given to us precisely as we ask it. But God will give it to us better than we ask for. If we pray in accordance with his will. Sometimes it is his will to do now things that are a foretaste of what he will do in eternity. Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In that instance, however, Jesus knew that it was the Father's will that Lazarus should rise on that day. Thus he prayed to that end. We do not pray this way when a loved one dies because we recognize that was a unique instance of the Father's will whereby God desired to reveal that resurrection life is found in Christ. And yet, we pray sometimes and often miraculous things we pray that God would heal we also pray for things like the furtherance of the gospel and as we saw last Sunday morning we know that sometimes that might mean that it there's a season of fallowness a season where it doesn't seem like the gospel is going forth with much strength but we can know that God is answering that prayer even if he's not doing it in the precise ways that we would like to see it in our own context that's the way i want you to think about prayer when you pray in line with god's will you can be confident that he hears your prayers even if you're not exactly sure how he's going to answer that in his perfect wisdom according to his sovereign promises now we need to conclude with some final notes some things that john includes in this passage And I do want you to see how they connect to what he's saying. Here in verse 24, he says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. We've been talking a lot as we've gone through 1 John about how John calls us to look at the evidence in our lives to test whether or not we are really in Christ. And yet we must remember that he's not speaking about perfection. But the Christian life is marked by a discernible change in the life. As I was driving here, I was thinking about the trees as I was passing by. Most of the trees have no leaves on them right now. But I know that very soon, many of the trees will begin to uh, bud leaves and will begin to produce foliage. I know that those trees are alive. And yet, I know that some of the trees I passed will never produce a leaf again. I know that many of them are dead because they're ash trees and an invasive insect has killed them. And how do I know that? Because Mike Miller told me. That's how I know that. Right now, as I look at the trees, they look the same. They're all leafless trees. In time... I will see that they're not the same at all. That some of those trees are alive. And some are not. In the same way in the Christian life. In the Christian life. We go through seasons in our lives. We are those who are to be abiding in Christ. But sometimes it feels like we're pretty lifeless. We don't have a lot of fruit. We don't have leaves on our trees. On our branches so to say. That's very common. Very, that's, that's just typical of this life. Before Christ's coming. And yet God in his time. In his season produces the fruit. And we will see that. In the course of our lives. Even if we go through those seasons. We feel like we're not seeing it. That's the difference between those who are in Christ. And those who are not. Those who are not in Christ. Are like those ash trees. That will never produce leaves again. And so. Though we look for those things, keeping his commandments, to be the sign that we are abiding in Christ, the final word is not there. The final word comes from the Spirit whom God has given us. The Spirit assures us of the truth of God's word, of those things by which we assure our minds. And so as we see, we, be, we end where we began. We see that the final verdict is one rendered by God. Just as I know the difference between these two kinds of trees. Because Mike told me. I know the difference between those who are in Christ. And those who are not. Because of what the Spirit assures us. Because the Spirit assures us of God's word. We don't need to dwell on this point any longer. Because we're going to take it up again in two weeks. When we look at 1 John 4. We'll talk about the Spirit's ministry. And how we can be discerning when we think about the spirit of Christ in comparison with the spirit of Antichrist. Let me simply conclude with a summary note. There are many things that will cause us to doubt that we are of the truth. Our hearts are full of internal misgivings. Nevertheless, we know that God has borne witness and his testimony is true. The father has called us children. The son has laid down his life for us. The Spirit has given us new life. The Father hears our prayers. The Son intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit confirms God's word to us. This is the testimony of our triune God. If any of these truths simply stated, stir your heart and your affections for Christ, then do not doubt. Persuade your heart to get in line with your head. That you may be sure that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And if it is some nagging sin, some besetting sin that causes you to doubt, confess it to the Lord. Turn to Christ and fix your eyes on him. Remember what he's done for you. Seek help from your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. And pray that God would grant you freedom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we come to 1 John, we see that these words are difficult. They're hard for us to bear. And yet they're so encouraging at the same time. We think of great and wonderful truths about who you are and what Christ has done for us. Then we reflect on ourselves and how far we fall short of your righteous standard. We are led to despair. And yet you, O Lord, know all things and you are greater than all. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to persuade our hearts, to assure our hearts that your verdict, which is rendered, is true and is right, that we might have the full assurance of faith. We pray, O Lord, that you also would work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. We know that here on this side of eternity, we will always be changing by degrees into his image. But we know that when we see him, We will be like him as we see him as he is. We look forward to that day with hope, purifying ourselves by this hope as you purify us through these truths. Lord, we pray that you would work your perfect work in us by your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.